Good evening. evening. It's my privilege and duty this evening to bring to you God's word. Uh, Tonight we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 3. Um, At some point here, I'm just going to start referring to this as Genesis chapter 1 because that's truly what it is in the original Hebrew Bible. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. I'll go ahead and read it for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth. Going to skip ahead. The next, in 26, the Lord said, Let us make man in our image. We'll cover that in more detail. The Lord blesses them and enters into his rest. We'll cover those in more detail 
during the sermon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this word which we are going to um, take a look at tonight. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. I pray, Father, that you would let the words on my lips and the meditation of every heart in this room be acceptable in your sight. Help me, Lord, to speak on your behalf. Lord, not speaking from my own mind, Lord, but speaking your word. God, help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Forgive me for such a long reading there. So, there was a romantic comedy. I'm going to get into romantic comedy here, where there was a shy, socially awkward 16-year-old young woman. She, her grandmother comes to America, and she's shocked by this news by her grandmother because her grandmother comes to tell her she's royalty. Her father was a prince. He's passed, and she's a princess. And the granddaughter replies, Me? A, a princess? Why on earth would you pick me to be your princess? The grandmother says, Since your father died, you are the natural heir to the throne. That's our law. I'm royal by marriage. You are royal by blood. You can rule. The granddaughter replies, rule? No, no, no. I've never let anybody. I only want to be invisible, and I'm good at that. I don't want to be a princess. Over time, this young woman comes to embrace her, her origins that she didn't know about before, that she was ignorant of. She embraced this truth about her father. She embraces the people that she would eventually rule, their customs, the information she needed to know as in that context in order to rule well. Her name's Mia, Amelia, Mignonette, Grimaldi, something, Princess Diaries. Like Mia in the Princess Diaries, we need to become aware of our origins. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, like I said, I'll start referring to this as the first chapter of the Bible because it's the first chapter of the Hebrew Bible. It deals with origins, the origins of all things. We read a little bit of that already. The origins of man. It introduces the main characters of the Bible, God, man. It introduces that big conflict, that big problem that comes in eventually, well, afterwards, right afterwards, it introduces. Man's sin is, is, is explained in the second creation narrative. This is the first. But we, we get introduced to the Lord and to ourselves. So tonight, we're looking at our origins. We're looking at who God is. We're looking at who man is. And then who all of us in this room are. So first, let's consider who God is. At verse 1, we read, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. I don't care if this is review for you. This is glorious. If you have ever been to a play, you will know that plays can be, can be one-act plays, two-act plays, three, four, five. Shakespeare had five acts. Here in 
the very introduction of what you could say is the first act of Genesis, if you broke it down into, into four acts, the things having to do with the beginning, the setup for everything, the background to Israel, the second act dealing with Abraham and his journey to blessing, the third act dealing with Jacob and receiving God's blessing, and then Joseph being a blessing. This, here at the very first verse of this introduction to the first act and the whole thing, Moses pastorally speaks to the people of Israel, those people that have been saved by Yahweh, delivered from Egypt, and he connects their redemption from Egypt by Yahweh all the way back here to the beginning. In the beginning, God, Yahweh is this God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Yahweh is not merely some local deity that saved Israel out of Egypt. He's the God of all of the heavens and the earth. He's the God who created everything. And that's how Moses starts off this section of the Bible. Israel's Savior is the Creator God. He's the absolute sovereign, the supreme sole ruler of the cosmos of all that has been made. And then we see, which what stood out to me throughout this narrative, is the authority of this God's word. We see it all the way through. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse. And it was so. Verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. He, his, the authority of his word is even seen in his naming of everything. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. It was so. God said, verse 14, let there be lights. And it was so. God said, verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. So God created the great sea creatures and every... Do you notice like the almost, it's almost redundant because there's a lack of instrumentality other than Yahweh's word in this passage. And God said, and it was so. And God said, so God created it. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And it was so. We'll save the creation of man for later. But who is it that could have such an authority to just speak and all of creation is made? To have the authority to speak and things are named and ordered and given their identity and purpose and function. This points us to the inexhaustible creative power of the creator God. He's introduced from the very beginning as the ruler over all. He's, a peer, he's peerless. There's nobody here with him. Peerless, all-powerful creator. 
So that's something of the sovereignty of the creator God. Now let's consider the comprehensive sovereignty. So something of the absolute sovereignty. Now let's consider the comprehensive sovereignty of Yahweh as the creator God. What did he make? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created light, the day. He created darkness, night. He created the dry land and the seas, the plants and the animals, on the land, in the waters, the heavenly lights, including the sun and the moon and the stars. Again, we'll get to man later. I'm saving that. We're seeing that this Yahweh, and again, I know it's likely very much review for us. Like I said, it's glorious. Yahweh is the creator God over all things. So he's absolutely supreme, but he's also comprehensively supreme. And this is a polemic against the local deities around the nation of Israel. They would have been placed, made first, placed in their temples, if they had a temple, and it would have been seen as a way of getting something that people felt like they needed, security, um, fruitfulness of the land, etc., etc. They had these various theories of theogony, which means the generation and the genealogy of the gods. Doesn't that sound like jumbo shrimp? <laughs> theogony, the generation and genealogy of the gods. And then they had various theories of cosmogony, the genesis of the cosmos. And Moses is setting up Yahweh here as the creator of all things in contrast with the deities around Israel. And part of the function of that is to tell the Israelites to remain faithful to this God, not to go after the other gods of the nations around Israel, but to be faithful to the only one who created everything and who's comprehensively sovereign over all. Some of the views that the nations around Israel had included things like the terror. The, they, they viewed things like sea monsters as terrifying and the deeps as a place of chaos. It's actually the deepest fruit of, um, of combat between the gods causing the chaos in the deep. He's speaking against idolatry, such as the worship of heavenly bodies, the stars, the moon, because the true God is the one who's over all of those things. And actually, the true God doesn't tell his people that they should fear those things. He just says they're good. There's nothing to fear. They're actually good. You see the contrast between Israel's God and the creation account versus some of the things I've mentioned with the, the, um, the accounts around the people of Israel. I like what Bruce Waltke had to say. He said, instead of cosmic deities locked in mortal combat, God the creator works calmly as a craftsman in his shop. There is no more danger that he will fall before the monster of chaos than there is that the chair will devour the carpenter. This, these things were something that people genuinely feared and they needed their gods, little g gods, to help them. And Moses, again, is reminding Israel, 
God is not a local deity. He's supreme and he's comprehensively sovereign over all and he made it good. Therefore, you don't need to fear it. One example of these creation myths around the people of Israel is called Enuma Elish. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's, as one scholar puts it, one of the most famous myths emanating from the ancient world, and it's relevant because it comes from the time period of Israel. And like pretty much the whole thing has been recorded, or a high, high amount of it. Within this, this, this epic, it's, it's a Babylonian creation epic. It tells how before the formation of heaven and earth, nothing exists, existed except water. Um, there, 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 there's um, a generative element identified with the male personification of, of sweet water. It's kind of strange. That has, he has a female associate, Tiamat, the primordial saltwater ocean, um, she's represented as a ferocious monster. Um, these two waters come together and create divine offsprings. That's where their other gods come from. And then there was a time where they lived, the younger gods were, were dis- disturbing the peace. And then the, the, the two original gods decided to destroy the gods, etc., etc. Do you see the chaos of these gods? One of the, the, one of the um, aspects in Babylon was that the gods didn't want to work, so they made human beings basically to be their slaves. So it, does, it, doesn't, it has a, um, a view of man that doesn't dignify humans. And you, we're going to talk about that shortly. It's just not the same. And that was all related to structures in society, um, justifying the harshness of the rulers in the state in Babylon. If the god, like Marduk was one of the names, can, can have heavy-handed force that justifies the other rulers, the human rulers, etc., etc., etc. But we see in Genesis, in contrast to gods that have conflict and they lack control over chaotic forces, fearful things, we see, like I said, the creator God in complete control. He's made everything good, and it's to be seen as very distinct from the nations around Israel. The next thing that we see in the Genesis narrative is that there is one king in one temple on one throne exercising one rest. So let me explain all of that to us. I'll read 2, 1 through 3. After the Lord created everything in the six days, declares it good, one or two times he declares it very good. And then in verse two, uh, chapter 2, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day... God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I said one king, one temple. This world that God has made is his cosmic temple. That's why 
in a, in a text like Isaiah 66.1, we read, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Do you see even in Isaiah there, the Lord saying that heaven's his throne, the earth is footstool, the house and that gets connected to a place of rest. A temple is God's place of rest. We, we know that. And the rest of Scripture connects with this creation account. And we see certain features that point out to tell us that what is happening in the creation is God is, has created his temple. That's why he says, what is a house that you would build for me? Because everything is my temple. One scholar wrote about the Sabbath aspect here. The account culminates in Sabbath or divine cessation from creation, which to the Torah is as much a part of the cosmic order as is the foregoing creativity. So in the nations around Israel, you would have had, in a lot of cases, shrines, temples, with, with um, images of the local deities in their regional temples. But here, in Genesis, Yahweh is depicted as the global God at rest within a cosmic temple. It's very different. 2, 1 through 3 depicts the reigning rest. Is, is, God, stop, is God just asleep? 2... Chapter 2, 1 through 3 doesn't mean God isn't doing anything. He's reigning on his throne. And the earth is his footstool. So there's one king, one temple, the cosmos. Of course, the church now is the temple. But in terms of one true temple over against these local deities, so-called, there's one throne and there's one king at rest. And that's Israel's God. Notice how invigorating, I hope, I'm not being boring. Notice how invigorating the truth of God can be. This text strengthened me as I was preparing to preach it because I'm reading of the all-powerful, almighty creator God who made everything so effortlessly, seemingly. He's, he's not exhausted at all by saying, let there be and making everything. If my God, who promises to answer my prayers, who encourages me to exercise faith, if my God is that God, I can approach something like studying his word, asking for prayer for insight into the text, for wisdom in crafting a sermon, for clarifying my thoughts, power to live it out, Power to help in the preaching, et cetera, et cetera. I'm giving an example for how it ministered to me because God, that's nothing for Him. It's, it's, it doesn't, I'm, I have a little bit of a sweat going. It doesn't make Him sweat at all. I thought of how Peter told the Lord, Where else shall we go, Lord? Why would a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, turn to a piece of wood? When they have access to this God. That leads us, I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit, that leads us to think, to consider, we've considered who God is. The covenant God of Israel is the 
absolute sovereign, the ruler over all, that leads us to consider who man is. Man was made on the sixth day. And I'll read it in full. Then God said, that's verse 26, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We'll stop there for now. Man, our brother, I can't remember if he prayed it or he, he commented based on Psalm 8 earlier. Flynn pointed out that man is the crown jewel of God's creation. Man is meant to, what Moses is doing here is he wants man to stand out in this narrative. The creation of man. Even day three and day six actually... Um, correspond to one another and stand out. There are elements that cause us to see that the Lord is, on the one hand, making something, uh, a world to be inhabited, and he's making, God, or he's making man in his own image to inhabit that world. We don't have time to get into all those details. But just take a look at verse 26, how the Lord says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. One commentator pointed out how that's connected with what came before it. In verses 11 through 12, the Lord said, Let the earth sprout vegetation. So let the earth sprout it. So the the, the earth is producing vegetation. In verses 20 to 25, He says, let the waters swarm with living creatures. But here, as I've hinted at earlier, there's no no, um, habitat that the Lord is calling out to create this creature, man. It's just the Lord saying, let us make man in our image. So there's something unique even in that language here about mankind. God makes him directly in 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 that sense. And he says, let us make man in our image. What does image mean? I take that to mean that man is God's statue. He's God's representative on the earth. When you see a man, you're supposed to see God. In, in In a lesser sense, of course. You're supposed to see what God is like. And that is the travesty of the fall. The man is created as the crown jewel of creation. He's in sovereign, he's, he's, in, he's in a derivative sovereign authority under God over the world, over the creation, over the animals, etc. And he's made in God's image. He's in a great place. He's in a very um, unique situation, and, and he falls from that. Man, it doesn't just have God's image. We need to get that straight. We, we aren't actually proper to say Man has God's image. We know what we mean. It's actually better to say man is God's image. Do you see the difference of that? So there was a long time where the church um, down through the ages thought 
that this really had to do with man's rational capabilities and things like that. Um, the Reformed tradition sees it holistically as all that man is, and I think that's right. Man is the image of God. Can you picture that in your mind? God has created a temple, and he's placed his image in it. That's why, one of the big reasons why, we don't set up images. God's already set up an image. We are his image. And again, the, the, the problem with sin is that we're not representing God to the world as he's designed us to. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We talked this morning in Sunday school about Hebrew parallelism. A few of you can remember that from this morning. And we see that right here. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now the question is, what kind of parallelism is this? Is it, is it, um, is it synonymous parallelism, where it's saying the same thing, maybe in a slightly different way? Is it antithetical? It's definitely not that. Or is it, or is it the kind of parallelism which is adding to Synthetic parallelism, Dr. Sproul covered in the morning in the video we watched. And I think, although if we take it as either synthetic, adding to what image means a little bit, or if we take it as synonymous, it, at the end of the day, the application we're going to get is the same. I lean towards thinking it's synthetic, that it's actually a little bit nuanced. I think that. I agree with those that say what I've said about image and the Reformed tradition's view. And then likeness, very close to that, saying something a little bit different. Image is our being, our sonship. Our God has made us sons. When we, you see us, we should see God. So it points out that vertical aspect. And likeness, I think, is something of the horizontal aspect, how we our representation as it's a priestly role, our representation of the deity to the world. So what is man's function? If image emphasizes the vertical relationship and likeness emphasizes the horizontal relationship, of man to the world as God's servant king. I know I'm using language we might need to chew on. What is man's function? That comes up right after that, 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 um, that uh, statement of the Lord to make men. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man has been placed here. The emphasis in this text is that God has made man to represent him and the, 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 the exact aspect of that that's, that's emphasized here is man's ruling function. What does that mean? Man is a vice regent. He's been, he has dele, a delegated authority, a task. The Oxford Dictionary defines delegate 
to delegate as entrust a task or responsibility to another person, typically one who is less senior than oneself, less superior than oneself. One scholar compares this to the context around Israel, the language here, and he talks about how in the ancient East, the setting up of the king's statue was the equivalent to the proclamation of his dominion over the sphere in which the statue was erected. I know this is kind of treading some waters here. When in the 13th century BC, the pharaoh Ramses II had his image hewn out of rock at the mouth of something I cannot pronounce, <laughs> on the Mediterranean north, in the Med- somewhere in the Mediterranean, the image meant that he was ruler of that area. Accordingly, man is set in the midst of creation as God's statue. He is evidence that, the, that God is the Lord of creation. But as God's steward, he also exerts his rule, fulfilling his task, not in an arbitrary despotism, but as a responsible agent. His rule and his duty to rule are not autonomous. They are copies. There's a lot there. I think we can summarize it by saying something like, in the world around Israel, it was common for kings to set up statues to represent themselves and say, this is my territory. And that's something of what man is like as God's image and God's likeness. We are called by God to represent him and particularly his authority. Man, by nature, we are authority. We have authority within us. I know this. someone could take this way too far and, um, and uh, be ungodly about talking about a man's authority, but there's a reason why we have the, some of the desires that we have for work, for leadership, and things like that. And I think there might be something here that is dignifying every single Israelite who's experienced something of the view that said, like, someone like the Pharaoh is the king, he's God's son, he's the image of God. I think that that kind of language of use of that kind of a figure in in Egypt, and I think part of what Moses is doing is he's, he's dignifying every single Israelite. You are all in God's image. And I think it has something to do with preparing them to go into the land and rule it. And there's definitely, as we'll get to, application for us today. But hasn't man, hasn't man imperfectly represented God? Haven't we abused authority? There's the two extremes, abusing authority or being incredibly passive. Haven't we been imperfect as image bearers of God, called by God to represent him to the world around us. There are times where people would, could look at us and they would be really confused about who God is based on the misrepresentation that we do because of our sin, our harsh words, our lording it over others, 
our lust, our pride, our unkind words, our selfishness, our pointing, that, 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 that God-given impulse to show forth someone or something, because we're God's image, but we want to take that and use it for show forth, showing forth ourselves, living for our own glory. So, the fall has messed things up. We're not covering that text, but it, it, it's messed things up. And the rest of the Bible unfolds. A huge part of it is the story of the one who would come and who would be God's son, that relationship vertical we talked about, who would represent him faithfully, horizontally, who would be his image. When you see him, you can see this God, without qualification, without all the things I just said. And it's through Christ, the image of God, we heard some of that this morning, that we are forgiven for our failures to to live out who we are supposed to be as God's image and his likeness. Christ died and bore our sins on that cross to make us right with God. But also, he's restoring human beings. We're being renewed in the image of our creator, 2 Corinthians talks about. So we trust in Christ, who is the capital I image of God, but I think that we also need to realize that there's something here for us in Christ to apply in our lives. God has dealt with us with our sins on the cross, And he empowers us to live out his will. And if his will is being expressed here, then we are called to do it. I was working the other day. I told Marie that I would use this illustration today. Um, I was working a couple, two or three days ago at the weight room on campus at Southern Seminary. And uh, we have these very loud um, alarms on some of the doors that you're not supposed to open like in the stairwells and things like that. They're armed doors. You have to have a key to turn off the alarm and open the door. And sometimes, hope Dr. Moeller isn't watching this or something. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, sometimes people who have the key know that, hey, I can go in the back way. I'll just quickly turn off the alarm. And the other day, the alarm's going off and going off and going off, and I take my key to, un- to, un- to unlock the alarm, and then I hear someone, I'm not going to say their, their position, talking about how, man, that thing's just going to keep going off. And what had happened was I couldn't get my key in it because his key snapped. Nobody could unlock it. And I was talking about that with Marie, and I said, I'm going to use that as an illustration for tonight because God's image, it's not, we, don't, we don't have the image in us, we are God's image. God's image is broken. And in that situation with the key, we couldn't, like, get some super glue and attach the key that broke to the key to try to fix the situation. We needed a whole new key. And man, being God's image, but who, had, who has fallen into sin, we need a new nature. We need the new birth. There's a reason Jesus told... told um, The rich young ruler, you must be born again. So, Christ who died 
gives his people the new birth, and from that new nature enables them to live out what it means to be God's image bearer in our lives. And there are various aspects where this, I think this text is very helpful for us right now with, with various things that, that we have going on in our lives. So in Christ, we're called to live out this, this representing of God to, to the world around us. We're, we're called to represent him. But how are we going to do that if we just stay at home and focus on how much we haven't lived out this image? For example, how are we going to represent God if we don't have anybody that we have contact with to, to show forth our God, our, our Christ, our creator, our redeemer? So passivity is a problem, whether that's a variety of different things that can be, be in that fear. Um, per, I'm, I become passive when I'm perfectionistic. It's pretty strange because you don't want to mess up anything so you don't do anything um depression anxiety fear i've said that um feeling condemned but it takes balance those who want to exercise manly or womanly dominion those books that we our brother chansky wrote those who want to live that out are going to have to balance it because we could on the one hand, um, one aspect that we can mess up is we can have an oversight. I'm trying to deal with the ignorance of that so that we can get that out of the way of being ignorant of this call. So there's oversight, and that's, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. But there's also overreach with this exercising of manly dominion, and we don't want to go there either. So there's relationships and processes that we have to balance in these things. A father might provoke a child to wrath, as an example, because of a lack of respecting the image of God that that child is, thinking that this guy's only the, the image of God. And listen to me, because I'm the representation of God, as if this child or whoever isn't. This text dignifies you, brothers and sisters, but it also dignifies people that aren't like you. And it gives us a freedom. There is actually a great freedom as image of God, but it also has a responsibility with it. I was thinking of it, trying to emphasize this to us. What do you do when you have a completely open Saturday? No, nothing on your calendar, nothing due at work, no assignments to do. What do you do with that? As God's image, you have authority to choose. Do you want to go golf? Daryl wants to go golf. <laughs> you can choose certain things. You can say yes to people when they ask you to do something, but you also have the right and the responsibility to say no when that seems like the best thing to do because you have authority inherent in who you are as God's image. I hope that's helpful. It ministered to me. So as we wrap up this dealing with this text. I want to leave us with an, um, an acronym. I'm going to redeem an acronym. CGI. 
So CGI, I, um, the Nashville Film Institute, for those that don't know technology, um, if people like me that need, to, need a definition on hand, CGI is computer-generated gener imagery. It's abbreviated as CGI. It creates still or animated visual content with computer software. Those Hobbit movies were CGI. It's, they can do 3D imagery, imaging, 3D rendering. It usually refers to 3D computer graphics, used to create characters, scenes, and other special effects in movies, television, and games. It's also used in advertising, architecture, engineering, virtual reality, and even art. CGI, I'm redeeming that, and I'm saying C, S-E-E-C, G-I, God's image. And CGI, the better that it is, the more closely it resembles the, I guess, anti-type or whatever, um, that which it's supposed to depict, the better it is, the more trouble you'd have identifying the, the, the real one or the CGI one. Again, this is not a perfect illustration, but CGI, see God's image. In yourself, start with yourself. Prayerfully work this out and grow in it. Grow in your realization of the inherent dignity that you have. I know we can think, man, Brendan, don't puff us up, but God says this about us. And it's a great responsibility, so it humbles us. So strive to become, to become, to, to live this out, to growing in, in your Christian life, in your spiritual life, and in your personal life. This is a, applicable across the board because it's who we are. It's not something we do or something we have. The image is, some, is who we are. So it's, it's tied to everything. And see God's image. So see it. Pray to see it more in your life. And prayerfully cultivate an attitude of respect and honor for fellow image bearers. Even the youngest among us. And perhaps especially those the most unlike you. So see God's image prayerfully. Pray to the Lord that you would see more of it in your life. Again, not becoming introspective because really it means that we're representing our creator God who saved us. And pray that you would grow in your sensitivity to, real, to respect those image bearers around you. CGI, see God's image. And if you haven't believed on Jesus, I suppose the application for you is to see God's image in Christ. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've failed to represent him. It's not an option because it's inherent in you. You're God's image and you're meant to Show him to the world. And for every way in which you have failed to represent God faithfully, Christ paid for that sin 2,000 years ago on the cross. And he lived the perfect life showing who the Father is. John 1 says that Jesus has revealed the Father 
and made him known. So see God's image today, very much like this morning's sermon. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and he will forgive and cleanse you and enable you to live out the theology we've been talking about, which actually elevates you in a dignified way because it's, it's very special to be God's image bearer and to be God's restored image bearer is even better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have such a status as the image of God. Father, praise you that the of God is attached to that word, the image of God. Father, forgive us for the many ways, even today, that we have failed to represent you in our words, in our character, in our actions. Father, forgive us for the disrespect that we can have in our hearts, even if nobody else sees it, toward our fellow image bearers. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which perhaps you're showing us right now that we have failed and sinned. But also, Father, for, and we pray that you would forgive us for the ways that we are not yet aware of that we have failed to show forth you in our lives. But thank you, Lord, that Christ has come. He has shown us the Father and forgiven us of our sins if we're in him. I pray, Father, that you would seal these things to our hearts, Lord, in the most healthy way. Dignify us, Lord, the the most discouraged and the most anxious and the most lowly saint, Lord, who needs to remember their their very dignified status. I pray that you would um, lift them up in that way. Father, strengthen us all and help us to live this out that we would, that others really would see you, the image of God, which we are, for your glory, and Lord, that we would in our hearts be sensitive to the image around us in others. Help us, Father, in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.